Hi there, this is Greg Young. Tom and I are still off celebrating the Bowery Boys' 15th anniversary. The ground is littered with champagne bottles. And so for today, I wanted to present to you one of the best shows that we've produced this year for The Gilded Gentleman, the Bowery Boys spinoff podcast hosted by Carl Raymond. We often talk about the movers and shakers of New York's Gilded Age, but what about the men and women who were serving them? What was life like for a valet, a cook, or a scullery maid in the mansions of late 19th century New York? How were houses with large staffs even managed? What were the hardships and what were the benefits? You'll find out all this and more as Carl is joined by Esther Crane from the website Ephemeral New York and the author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1914, as they discuss the true stories of those hardworking domestic servants. And after you're done, please head over and check out the latest episode of The Gilded Gentleman, featuring everything you've always wanted to know, but were afraid to ask about absinthe, that mysterious liquor which bedazzled the cafe societies of Paris and London. Does absinthe make you hallucinate? And why was it banned in the United States for nearly a century? Carl is joined on this episode by Don Spiro, creator of New York's Green Fairy Society, to find out what made this entrancing elixir so appealing to writers like Marcel Proust and Oscar Wilde. But first, a trip downstairs to visit the invisible magicians of old New York. The images of the opulent mansion's sprawling lawns, highly polished silver and crystal, and of course, impeccably cared for fashions and exquisitely prepared French food are some of the first images our minds conjure up when we think about the Gilded Age. And all of that is accurate, but the story of the armies of servants, housekeepers, butlers, footmen, ladies' maids, parlor maids, chambermaids, gardeners, valets, chefs, cooks, and scullery maids that were all required to keep it going, make it look flawless, and make sure their employers always put their highly polished right foot forward. Well, that's perhaps the most important story of all. Quite simply, without these workers, whose hours were long and whose pay was low, without them, despite how much money their employers had, without them, none of that outward glamour of this world would have ever come to be. Today, I am joined by author and speaker Esther Crane to take a deeper look into the world below stairs and see what went on quite literally behind the gold. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks, I'll take you beneath the glitter and the gold for a closer look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Today, we are focused on the Gilded Age of New York and the story of the women and the men who formed the legions of domestic help to make the upper middle class homes, as well as the grand mansions of Fifth Avenue and Newport, run and to create the image that it all just ran by, well, magic. In 1890, a professor of history at Vassar College, Lucy Maynard Salmon, wrote the very first deeply detailed work. It was a study of the world of the domestic servant, and it opened up the realities of this world to the rest of the world. Using questionnaires submitted by Vassar alumni, she attempted to give accurate statistics and a clear portrait of life below stairs. Her work remained the standard reference into this world until, astonishingly, the 1970s. She ended her work with a plea that those of domestic service not be considered outside society, but rather part of it. And she strongly advocated for reform, both in the education and training of staff, as well as for those who employed them. In more recent times, and for perhaps a less academic audience, it's the great social dramas that we love that show us not only the life above stairs, but life below stairs as well. The great upstairs, downstairs, perhaps, is the classic. 
Of course, everyone's beloved Downton Abbey, and most recently, of course, the just-premiered new Julian Fellows series, The Gilded Age. All give equal weight to the worlds of the wealthy and those who make sure they keep up its appearance. So often, they really were the invisible magicians, barely even seen or heard. And in fact, even some mistresses like Alva Vanderbilt had special shoes made especially for her staff so they could move through the rooms and the halls completely noiselessly. And of course, each mansion was outfitted with staircases and hallways behind the walls with unobtrusive doors to allow servants to appear and disappear as if by magic. But their lives were not magic. And as we know, the work was hard, the hours were long, and that pay was low. But without them, this world that seemed so gilded would never have existed at all. Today, I'm joined by a truly wonderful guest, Esther Crane, to talk about several aspects of this world and clarify its realities. Esther Crane, a native New Yorker, is a writer and editor. She is the author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910, and New York City in 3D in the Gilded Age. In 2008, she launched Ephemeral New York, a website that chronicles the city's past. Ephemeral New York has been featured in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, and other publications. She speaks regularly on topics related to New York City history and conducts walking tours that explore New York's hidden pockets and little-known stories. Esther, I am so honored to have you join me here today. I am thrilled to be here, Carl. <laughs> this is this is a treat. If I can talk about everyday life in the Gilded Age, this is this is wonderful. You certainly can, <laughs> as much as you can. Esther and I have become really great friends. And this show actually came out of a coffee that Esther and I were, were having together. It was a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking over different subjects that we could do together. And we hit on this subject of, of servants. And Esther, you just completely lit up. And of all the <laughs> subjects that you've covered on the Gilded Age, and there are an awful lot of them, you're pretty passionate about this world below stairs. Why is that? Well, it combines the two things I love about New York, which is, well, you know, just New York history. But as you said about um, ephemeral New York, sort of the hidden pockets and little known corners. And the servants, as you explained, were hidden. I mean, they were 16% of the entire population of New York. That's an enormous number of people. I think it came out to 55,000 people in about in the 1870s or 1880s. Um, yet these people were supposed to be inconspicuous, not not seen, their magic, as you put it, not viewed. And it was all, you know, downstairs, upstairs, backstairs, away from the life that the family or the owners of the house wanted to showcase. But it's time to tell their story, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> So let's really dive in here. And we certainly know that domestic help was certainly prevalent by the beginning of the Gilded Age, say the 1870s or so, for households of various economic levels, not only the, the grand mansions. But New York had had domestic help really for much of the 19th century. Can you sort of take us through, Esther, how we got to this world of the Gilded Age in terms of domestic staff? Yeah, I mean, having a servant was nothing out of the ordinary. And, you know, New York didn't officially outlaw slavery until I think it was 1827, although there were many free black communities, you know, in the city and in Brooklyn as well. And people were used to having household help or help with their estate. So once it was outlawed, uh, a lot of ex-slaves became uh, servants. Um, they were paid. They lived in the house or they lived away from the house. It just depended on the situation. Then with the rise of thousands and thousands of European immigrants coming in that first wave in the 1840s, and then after the Civil War, even in greater numbers, there, was a, there were a lot of people in the city uh, who were you know, considered unskilled. They had no you know, profession or skills that could be transferred to you know, working in business or working in the arts or anything like that. And they, were, they became servants in the households of the people who were making a lot of money uh, after the Civil War, when the Gilded Age really began. Well, the myth is certainly 
persistent that it was always the Irish servant, but it was really a little more complex than that, really. It was a number of nationalities. Yeah, I mean, the Irish servants, and they were mostly women, and they were just sort of nicknamed, you know, your Bridget, which is, you know, sort of demeaning, but that's how it was. Uh, They were a huge group of servants, but there were also many German servants, Scandinavians, you know, later on it became Italian, Eastern European. Um, At some point, it was so hard to find a good servant. I mean, you know, probably every ethnic group that came to New York City that immigrated here at one point became, you know, they were members that were employed in households. Edith Wharton's memoir, A Backward Glance, which she wrote in the 1930s, and she there was a section of it where she's recreating her childhood and thinking back to New York of the 1870s and thinking about to her mother's house and her mother's kitchen. And she talks about the cooks in her kitchen as a child were actually two Southern women, two Southern Black women. Do you have any commentary on that? Because that's sort of a surprise in a way. There were these Southern dishes that were landing on Edith Wharton's table as a child, which is really sort of a surprise, but maybe not. I mean, certainly you had migration of African-Americans from the South coming up to the cities, including New York. But New York City's African-American population actually decreased after the Civil War with the draft riots where they were targeted. And uh, with so much European immigration, their numbers just became sort of dwarfed. So they sort of certainly were still working in domestic situations, but just not as much as they would have been in the first half of the 19th century. In uh, one post of Ephemeral New York, you mentioned this wonderful resource, which I had to just dash off and find online. It was Mary Elizabeth Carter's Millionaire Households and Their Domestic Economy. It was a a book that was written in, in 1903, which really chronicles how these houses were set up. Can you just sort of take us through what a household might have been like and how it was structured? I mean, some of these had dozens and dozens of servants, right? Yeah, and we don't pay enough, um, we don't give enough attention to the management skills that it actually, you know, were required to manage all of these people. These were kind of like mini workplaces, you know, I mean, everybody has a manager at their job. You know, there were these domestic managers that many of the wives, uh, wealthy women did, or they would outsource it to sort of their head housekeeper, who was um, the superintending housekeeper. So that would be a woman who was paid about 50 to $150 per month. Um, she was kind of like the foreman in the factory, if you will. She supervised all of the other maids and servants. Uh, she inspected their work. She actually had access to, I guess, what we would call like petty cash. You know, she could pay for deliveries and maybe go to the market if there was something that w- was needed. She was kind of like the stand-in for the wife or the woman of the household if that person didn't have the time or the skills to actually do all of this managing. Because we're talking about in the most luxurious homes, maybe upwards of 20, 25 people, and then a typical middle class or upper middle class could have maybe one to seven servants that would generally live in, but sometimes live outside of the house. I think that's so interesting. The housekeeper then was really, take the mistress aside, was really the most powerful female then in the household structure. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She had the ability to fire people. And she was probably tasked with also finding new help, which was, you know, extremely difficult at the time. How did you find help? Gosh, if she dismissed an under chambermaid, how did you get her replaced? Well, word of mouth was pretty big. You know, she could talk to another superintendent housekeeper in another family and see if they had, you know, if anybody knew of somebody. There were also ads taken out in the newspapers. It would be the situation wanted kind of ad where um, somebody who maybe worked as a chambermaid before and was let go or didn't like their old place could put an ad in the paper. And there's a wonderful illustration from a Frank Leslie magazine issue in the 1870s of all of these women like sitting around in the newspaper office, like filling out their ad. And they're all women of different ages and different ethnicities, but that's what you would do. You would go and you would put an ad in the paper. And there are also servant employment agencies that the family or the head of the servants, the superintending house housekeeper, uh, could go to as well. They would have, not to be flip about it, but sort of like fresh off the boat, you know, right from Castle Garden, like people coming in, and uh, they would be employed. They could come in on a Saturday and find themselves a job as a, as a you know, laundress in a, in a fancy mansion two days later. 
And references were important too, right? Because I bet word traveled really fast in Gilded Age New York. If, if you didn't work out, then that could be tough, right? But I get the feeling though that a lot of it was personality driven. You know, if, you know, let's say a chambermaid didn't like the woman who was supervising her or the family, you know, she could just go and find another family because there were so many openings for servants. I think it's kind of like the economy today where there's so many jobs that people are trying to fill that they're not being as choosy as you would think. And sometimes, this surprised me when I was doing some reading, that sometimes the mistress of the house didn't even know that these jobs were turning over. All of a sudden, it would be another right. undermaid or another chambermaid somewhere. And, oh, who are you? you yeah. Know? yeah. And it, it really de- it really depended a lot on the family. Um, you know, some families, they wanted, they were warmer. They wanted their servants to feel, you know, like they were a little bit more part of things, but certainly not part of the family. I mean, let's not get, it's not like today where, you know, a, a wealthy family might say, oh, our nanny, she's one of the family. You know, it's it's not quite like that. But they would want maybe a warmer atmosphere. They would be more liberal with how late she could stay out, which might be 10 o'clock after she finished up all of her duties. In addition to having a Sunday, a half-day Sunday off, they might give her another day off. And then there were others who were, you know, much stricter, really sort of nitpicked, got into the maid or servant's business and really sort of drove them away. There were huge debates about this, and it was called the servant question or the servant girl question. And all of these newspaper articles in the society pages would all, you know, would go over this endlessly. It was just the topic of for like 30 years in the newspapers where wealthy women would be just going over and over like, how, why is it so hard to find good help? And just giving their thoughts on that. And what did they say? Why did they think it was hard to find good help? Well, I can actually quote a few people. Oh, I'd love that. Because I found some fantastic newspaper articles. And I'm going to read the quotes of two different women. So there's one who's the more liberal type of woman of the house. And then there's one who is extremely strict. And this is a Mrs. Lester Carr. Now, I don't know who Lester Carr was. I think he's lost to the ages. <laughs> but apparently it was somebody who made a lot of money. And um, his wife was, you know, complaining about the servant situation. And here's what she says. And this is sort of a roundtable conversation that different society women are having. So imagine them all sitting around and then the, the reporter is just kind of taking all of these notes. I never allow my servants an afternoon off during the week. Why should I lose so much time and put myself to a great deal of inconvenience in doing the work myself? I allow Sunday afternoons off because I believe in that. Also, when the servant's work is finished at night, I am perfectly willing that they should go out as they please. Only one servant must always be at home. I don't ask where they are going, and they may stay out until the house is closed at 11 o'clock. That is late enough, and after that they can't come in. 10 o'clock is too early. You cannot start out at nine and make a call in an hour. So presumably the maid or the servant's work would be done around nine and they have two hours to themselves to maybe socialize or, you know, meet up with other servants. And a lot of them did socialize at their local parish because a lot of them were Catholic. Weren't they exhausted at that point in the day? (laughs) I, I, I would think some of these jobs, I mean, that's another thing that I find fascinating is that some of these jobs were exhausting. They must have been exhausting. And I think also just mentally, just being inside somebody else's house working for them, where they're probably not that nice, or just so remote, you barely know them. I can imagine these girls at nine o'clock finishing up, just going screaming to their local parish or wherever they're going to meet some other servants, and just doing what we all do, which is just venting. You can just imagine like, you know, how refreshing that must have been. And then they have to go home and do it all over again. And so, and Wester, you had another quote too, dying to know what you found. So this is Mrs. MacArthur. Um, Again, don't know her husband's first name and don't know which MacArthur's we're talking about here, but they were obviously wealthy. And this is a woman who's a little bit more liberal with her servants and the way that she, she actually calls out the way that other women treat their servants so poorly. And she says, I think if people would treat servants less like animals or part of their household furniture, they would get along better with them. I know people who say, keep servants down as much as you can and you will get more out of them. No, I have not been troubled with incapable servants. 
I do not, of course, require a professional cook. I require a good plain cook, and the food must be prepared in a palatable manner. There are some servants I could not keep, and I may have to try several times before I find one who suits me, but I never fail to do that eventually. I have sometimes wondered if it were if I was easier than other people with my servants that they and I have so little trouble. I have servants who have been with me seven and eight years. If mistresses were kinder and more thoughtful, I think there would not be as much trouble as there is. So she's, you know, probably right. I mean, if you're if you have a problem keeping servants, like the common denominator is you, mistress of the house. Um, you might want to like change your style. I think that's what's so interesting, and that's what Salmon said in her study that I that I mentioned at the beginning of the of the show. It's she said that yes, servants and staff need to be trained and educated, but so do the employers. You know, we all know today that it's really an art to being a good boss, and I don't think that's really changed so much, right? Right, and there actually was a group that formed to help train. Um, not just the servant, but to also give guidance for prices and rules for the people who employed them. And that would be a group with the wonderful name of the Society for the Encouragement of Faithful Domestic Servants. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Actually, it sounds kind of crazy to our contemporary ears, but they actually formed with the very sincere idea that servants and the people who employed them need to get on better, and then there would be less turnover, and everybody would benefit, because the servant, who presumably would be an immigrant or somebody who was of a lesser class, would learn uh, to be more refined, would learn how to behave in society, quote-unquote, and the upper-class person employing them would get the, the help that they need to run their house. I mean, somebody has to put the coal on in a cold night you know, every or the wood, like every so many hours to keep those fires going, right? Well, it seems like there probably was no such thing as the the perfect servant in the same way there was certainly no such thing as the perfect employer. But I think people, what certainly sounds anyway, had the idea of what's ideal and what's perfect for what certain role. It seems like French domestics served as ladies' maids and Englishmen served as butlers and, you know, things like uh, roles like that. Well, certainly everybody wanted, if you could afford it, a a French cook because French food was considered, thanks to Delmonico's, you know, just the highest form of gastronomical wonderfulness. But with Irish immigrants being such a huge part of the servant class, um, not everybody thought that they were the best, maybe. A lot of the Irish immigrants came from the countryside. You know, they, they, they didn't know... They, didn't, they weren't refined necessarily, um, whereas some of the other servants that came might have had a little bit more of what an upper-class American at the time would have thought of as class, for lack of a better word. Just to go back to that New York Times article, Mrs. Carr, Mrs. Lester Carr, also had a comment on the type of ethnicities that she liked and disliked. Um, so she said, I never take a servant, if I can help it, who has not been in service in the old country. They do not know that they are servants unless they have been. That is one thing they should know. It does not make any difference what they are. They may be ladies, but when they take a position, they are hired for servants, and that is what they must be. The Irish Americans do not realize this. Neither do the German Americans. An Irish servant, I think, is the best. So I think she's differentiating between a, somebody who's been here and an Irish family versus somebody who's new. I know the Swedes are considered to be, but they have no heart. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, to talk so frankly like that is just so bizarre to our ears. It's very shocking. And, you know, that's how people thought. And there might be somebody else who said, because Mrs. Carr references that I know the Swedes are considered to be the best, uh, they would, you know, lots of people thought the Swedes were the best and the Irish were the worst and the Germans were uh, good for this, but maybe not good for that. And, of course, you still had African-American servants. Unfortunately and sadly, they took the almost the lowest positions, which would be maybe living in the carriage house as grooms for the horses. Just these generalities are so difficult to, it is, to hear in, with our modern ears and modern sensibilities. The people very much thought, you know, each European culture or each culture from anywhere was just so different. And people subscribed to such narrow views because... That's just how people thought. 
just to differentiate themselves from the next person. And that's really a lot of what the Gilded Age was, was differentiating yourself, usually by wealth or position or background or ancestry, oh, yeah. whatever it happened to be, I right? I mean, there's, there's, the divisions are just, they're, they're fascinating. And I can't say that we don't think that way today. We just aren't so outward about them. I mean, you have, of course, the old rich, the new rich, the Shadiites, who were the, the people who created, you know, the crappy military uniforms and other goods that just fell apart, but made gazillions of dollars, you know, and everybody stratified themselves in some way. There's the, the Academy of Music crowd, and then there's the Metropolitan crowd. And people were just very open about that then. I think we think the same way. I mean, the human brain hasn't changed. We just don't like that we think that way. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually, there is so much more that we're going to talk about, but we are going to take a little break now, and we'll just be back in a couple of minutes. The Bowery Boys podcast is brought to you by For the Ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. This month's interviews include a discussion about Jimmy Carter, who was cool while he was in office, then the Democratic Party turned on him. What happened? There are so many questions that are answered in this interview with Jonathan Alter, author of his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Next, visit November 1943, when FDR, Churchill, and Stalin met in secret for the first time to chart a strategy for defeating Hitler. There, they made essential decisions that would direct the final years of the war and its aftermath. Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II, is an interview with author Brett Baer, where you'll learn about these three men and their alliance. Finally, the tables are turned when David Rubenstein is interviewed about his book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers and you'll find out which historical figures he would have liked to interview. That's the podcast For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm here with Esther Crane, and we are talking about the invisible magicians, the servants in Gilded Age New York. Now, Esther, we've talked about some roles that servants had. We've talked about some generalities, but I'm really curious. How about the servants talking for themselves? Is there anywhere we can hear their voice today? Uh, Yes, we can, because luckily, there's some outspoken servants, first of all, who replied to the New York Times roundtable of all of those women weighing in on servants. And there's one letter in particular that was published that I'd love to read. It's titled, What an Irish Girl Thinks. Um, So she's replying to Mrs. Carr and Mrs. MacArthur, and this is what she says. So much has been said lately throughout your paper on the servant question that I venture to ask you to be kind enough to listen to a servant's view of the case. That our faults have been told and retold is certainly a fact. Some of those faults I am willing to admit, others I deny. And as to what nationality makes the best servants, I hold that there are good and bad servants of every nationality. And I also hold that there are good and bad mistresses, good, kind, conscientious mistresses whose every word and action command respect from their servants and who have never had and never will have any trouble in getting good servants. But there is another class who look upon their servants as a lot of inferior beings put into this world for the sole purpose of drudging for them from morning till night and who are afraid that if they treat their servants with anything like respect, it will lower them one step on the social ladder, which they found so very difficult to climb. If such people would only remember that we are human beings, flesh and blood, just as they are, but lacking all their advantages, education, etc., which go a great way to help people overcome their faults, they would have better servants. But it seems to be an understood thing that the servant must be kept down. Tradesmen, laborers, in fact, everybody who work for a living look forward to the end of their day's work. But the New York servant, no. She can sit inside her prison bars, her basement gates, and dare not go out and get a breath of God's fresh air, which might help her temper and so benefit her mistress for the next day's work. I call that a mild form of slavery. I love this woman. We have to find her. I I just want to jump up and down, and (laughs) she really tells it straight. The the hidden hidden heroines and heroes of society. We don't have a name? No name. I believe this was an 1895 article, but there's no name. There's no identification of even what part of Manhattan she's working in when she came here. Wow. It's almost such a wonderfully written letter. I almost... It's almost hard to believe that you would think somebody who is a servant would have written this, but the rage is so real that I'm, I believe it. Well, I'm glad it got written at all and written at that time. And published. And published. <laughs> now, one thing I want to talk about that I think is really important for us to talk a little bit about is Gilded Age society was, of course, trying to copy European society, and particularly in the world of, of domestic help, they were trying to copy the British system and the British structure. But being a servant in one of the grand houses in in England, as we certainly see in Downton Abbey, for example, was actually very different than being a servant in an Astor or Vanderbilt mansion in, in New York. Can you talk about the different models and what was different about the servant experience in those two worlds? The difference is that England had a, a caste system. America did not. And uh, if you were born into the sort of servant class, you stayed with the family that your parents worked for, your grandparents even, that was just sort of accepted. In America, and there's a lot of, in the articles about the servant question, this is brought up many times, you know, why is it so much easier in England than it is in America? And that's because America is just founded on the idea that you know, we're all equal and anybody can rise from their, you know, quote unquote station. And there's a lot of talk from servants in some of these articles who say that, you know, I don't have to be a servant. I don't like this. I don't like living in these people's houses. Um, It doesn't work for me. I'm going to go get a job in the needle trades. I'm going to go be a shop girl. Same thing with the male servants. 
you know, maybe somebody's brought on as um, a valet or as a, a coachman. They don't like it. They feel that they're being um, disrespected. They can get a job somewhere else. It's just a completely different mindset from England and America, even though, you know, we sort of came out of the British and that kind of world. Another thing that I, that I found out, too, that makes it different is that the British who, the upper class British who were used to employing servants, they learned how to do that from their parents, their grandparents. The problem in America is that you had so many newly minted millionaires or just, you know, wealthier people who could, you know, suddenly they can afford servants. They had absolutely no idea how to manage them. They had no idea how to do it. There was no system set in place, no rules for them to follow, and it often just ended in disaster. And that all really contributed to the servant problem that, that you is, were talking about, right? These the shifting jobs and people quitting, and that didn't certainly didn't exactly. seem to happen in the British system because it, you didn't quit. Right. You didn't have so much shifting from station to station. Uh, there's actually an interesting quote that I read in one of these servant question articles it was from an Irish woman who now employed her own servant, but she started as a servant. And she said, you know, I know, I know how to treat my servant, my maid, basically, because I was one. The people that I work for and all of these other people, they have absolutely no idea. And therefore, there's just so much strife and hence the servant question. Yeah, I think that's something we really don't think too much about is the um, the lack of experience on the part of the employer. We sort of congratulate ourselves in America. And of course, you know, the idea that we're all equal is, you know, wonderful and, you know, has obviously worked out very well for people in our country. And it's, you know, it's a great thing to not be held back because of, you know, your station where you were born or who your parents were. But at the same time, you did have especially in the Gilded Age, uh, with so much money being, you know, turned over and people making a lot of money, you had all of these people who had no management skills, no idea how to do it. And there's no classes you could take, you know, how to manage my servant. It wasn't like that. I love hearing directly from these the voices of these servants in these letters and in pieces that you found. It seems, it seems though, as if some were were happy with their situations, but then there could be some other emotions in there too. Do you have? Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, I found something written by a servant, just about the loneliness of it, and that's something that we don't think of. We think, you know, you're so busy during the day, you're you're working for this family, and then you have your, you know, few hours time off, and you socialize with other people. You know, it's isolating. And this is a really interesting paragraph I want to read. I don't know uh, anything about this servant except uh, what she calls her awful lonesomeness. Um, she says, I went for general housework because I knew all about it, and there were only three in the family. I never minded being alone evenings in my own room, for I'm always reading or something, and I don't go out hardly at all. But then I always know I can, and that there is somebody to talk to if I like. But there, except to give orders, they had nothing to do with me. It got to feel sort of crushing at last. I cried myself sick, and at last I gave it up, though I don't mind the work at all. I know there are good places, but the two I tried happen to be about alike, and I shan't try again. So, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It is. And you, you think, too, <laughs> Very emotional. <laughs> I, I might be referring to, you know, servant girls, and I don't mean that in a flippant way, but they were really girls. There were a lot of young women, 15, 16, 17 years old, I mean, can you imagine a 16-year-old working in somebody else's house, living there, knowing nobody in this country, but maybe a few other servants to socialize with occasionally? That's crushing. One of the things that I, I think could even be construed as on the positive side of the life of a servant is when you are such a young girl or, or young boy or whatever it happens to be coming to this country. This was a dangerous city. This was a scary city. Yeah. Even, even then, if you went into domestic service, at least that would give you a le some level of, of, of safety and security. You were housed. That's a great point because it makes me also want to just point out that Servant work wasn't the only kind of work open to girls and women at the time. What people don't realize is that in the Gilded Age, a third of all women worked in some capacity. You know, people didn't just sit home. Most people in the city were working class or poor, and they needed the money. But they, they had options. There was the garment trade. There were shopkeep girls. 
There were other places that they could work. Uh, if you worked as a servant, you at least had your room and board paid for. That was included in your salary. You had your meals taken care of. You weren't making very much money, but you didn't want for many things. You didn't have to get car fare, as they called it, for the for the L or for the stage or the or the streetcar. You didn't have any place to go, so you didn't have a lot of expenses. And a lot of these women were able to save money, send home to their families in the old country, as it was called, or even give to their local parish and feel a part of the city. There were also many situations where servants were, were happy in, in where they were. Um, I have this quote I want to read from a German girl. This is from a book I found. It's an obscure book that was really enlightening about just the way people lived in the early 1900s. So this is sort of at the cusp of the Gilded Age, right when the Gilded Age was kind of turning into more of the progressive era. And it was about people who were immigrants and the work that they found. And this is what uh, she had to say. Uh, she was a servant working in a home, and she says, Wherever I have been employed here, the food has always been excellent. In fact, precisely the same as that furnished to the employer's families. In Germany, it is not so. Servants are all put on an allowance, and their food is very different from that given to their masters. I like this country. I have a great many friends in New York, and I enjoy my outings with them. We go to South Beach or North Beach or Glen Island or Rockaway or Coney Island. If we go on a boat, we dance all the way there and all the way back, and we dance nearly all the time we are there. I like Coney Island best of all. It is a wonderful and beautiful place. I took a German friend, a girl who had just come out, down there last week, and when we had been on the razzle-dazzle, the shoot and the loop-the-loop, -loop, and down in the coal mine and all over the Bowery and up in the tower and everywhere else, I asked her how she liked it. She said, Ach, it is just like what I see when I dream of heaven. <laughs> That's a lovely quote. It is. And so you think, you know, it, it is a situation that worked out very well for some people. I imagine that this German girl who wrote that probably didn't stay a servant for very long. She probably married and had a family. But she seems to have been fond of, of her circumstance, and she understood it was something that would work out well for her. And the food was good. That was great. It's one of the questions I, I so often get when I do talks about um, food and dining of the Gilded Age is what did the servants eat? Well, it's That's so interesting <laughs> because in the, in the big luxurious mansions where there would be like, you know, 12 or 15 or even 20 servants, they all had their own dining room and they had their own maid. They had a dining maid that worked in the dining room for the servants, which is, a, you know, this subservant, I guess you would call her. And they socialized. They enjoyed it. They got good food. Um, it became kind of like, you know, your workplace when you go to lunch with your coworkers or down to the cafeteria or the break room. So it wasn't all isolating for everyone. It wasn't all bad necessarily. I think there were a lot of people who got a lot out of it, especially knowing where they had come from in such maybe terrible circumstances in their home country in Europe with poverty and war. And this was an opportunity and it worked out. I think to me, when I think about all of this and, and so much of what you've been saying is the big takeaway for us is that it was different experiences for different people, depending on where you worked and who you worked for, and which is not so different from today, right? right? And, and it's so easy to get stuck in generalizations. Oh, in the Gilded Age, it was this. In this period, right. it was we have, this. We have these stock servant caricatures in our heads of the butler, which we should talk about. You know, the stern British kind of lurch-like person who uh, doesn't speak but stands there in his suit. There's something, of course, based on reality in that, but I don't think it was quite so, so severe for everybody. So we we've certainly talked about housekeepers and, and some of the female roles in the house, but what about the male roles? We certainly, the butler was the head of that tree, but what, what, what were other roles for, for men? Ah, okay. So the butler, of course, was sort of the, the head guy of the drawing room, and he handled, he was almost at the level of the superintending housekeeper because he had his own staff of people. There was also the valet, uh, or valet, as some people would call it. And this was a servant who was essentially in charge. He was sort of the equivalent of the lady's maid for the woman who laid out her clothes and her toilet and handled the personal details of her life and often traveled with her wherever she went in case she needed a touch-up or something. The valet did that for the male head of the household. He laid out his clothes 
his business attire and then his home attire. Don't forget, people changed outfits constantly in the Gilded Age. Um, and he just uh, took dry cleaning. Uh, he handled all of the personal aspects of the male head of the household's life. And he was also often a confidant for the man of the household and probably knew things that the wife didn't even know. And, you know, of course, wouldn't breathe a word. I think that's so interesting, the issue of trust between some of the staff members and their employers. There was a story I read recently about, uh, again, it was Mamie Fish and her housekeeper. And I guess there was a lot of loyalty between the two of them until the housekeeper actually published anonymously a tell-all fictional story, (laughs) uh, which, of course, Mamie Fish found out about and she was dismissed. So they had to be, I think, a little careful about what what they said. So as we got to the end of the 19th century and start into the 20th century, these grand houses declined and and the the roles for servants changed. Can you talk about how that sort of evolved into the, the new century? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things played into it. First of all, the idea of having your own mansion or single family house was starting to fall out of favor. Um, and all of the new luxury apartment buildings that were trying to lure rich people who, you know, were very suspicious of the idea of living, as Mrs. Astor reportedly called it, living on a shelf in an apartment building. They had their own servants in the building, and you didn't have to employ your own. If you moved into a 15-room suite, uh, you had the building servants. And there are also rooms that they had. If you ever look at the Dakota, where they have those very small little windows on those top three floors of the mansard roof, those were for servants. Uh, they, you know, at the time, nobody wanted to live up there where all lots, lots of equipment was. The idea of a penthouse didn't actually happen until the 1920s. Uh, so they put the servants' rooms up there. So, But you didn't have to have your own servant. You had the building servants. Buildings had dining rooms. They had lots of amenities that we don't think of now, but you didn't need an army of servants. And I think the other thing, too, is it's really expensive to hire all of these people and manage them. It just became too much. I mean, I can't imagine growing up in this environment and watching your mother, maybe she's a wealthy woman, try to manage all of this. And now you're a young married woman. Do you really want to have to do that, spend your life doing that? I think there were more opportunities for women and they didn't really need a lot of that or want that. I also think that the slowdown of immigration played a big role in it, too. Immigration law started to change around the turn of the century, and there wasn't quite the flow of people that were coming in uh, in the Gilded Age. And at a certain point uh, in the 19-teens, it all really came to a standstill. So people weren't as available to be your servants. So... Esther, as we sort of wind down here, if there are a couple of things you would like a modern audience to realize or keep in their brains about the world of servants in the Gilded Age, are there a couple things that you really think are either misconceptions that need to be changed or what would you like a modern audience to take away? I think what I would want people to know is, first of all, just how many servants there were in New York City. 16% of the population, which is a huge number, and how varied all of the different situations were, um, as the letters and diary entries that I read can attest. And that it was very different from sort of the caricature of the, you know, that that sort of servant class kind of thing. Um, And that the servants had the power to just quit. Nobody was indentured necessarily. It wasn't always so bad. It was it was a job. They fulfilled their duties. If they didn't like it, they had other opportunities, generally speaking. That's not always true. But there was a lot of moving around and moving up, and that's what they came to this country to do. So Esther, there's a question that I often ask my guests, and I would like to ask you as well. If you could sit down with anyone in the Gilded Age and have a little chat over a nice cup of tea, you are so well-versed in so many of the people and characters of the Gilded Age. Well, who would that be, and and what would you want to know? I think, after reading her letter, the Irish girl who sent in her thoughts about being a servant. You can feel the rage, and you can feel her just being so upset that all of these upper-class women are constantly posing the quote-unquote servant question, but not really asking the servants. 
And it's wonderful that the New York Times, which ran that article, actually printed her letter. And I would love to just talk to her about it. You know, take me through your day. What upsets you the most? What's, what's good about your job? What keeps you doing it? What do you think about during the day? Do you, what are your dreams? How old are you? I mean, I don't know anything about her. When did you come from Ireland? Are you one of the thousands of women who came all alone um, because Irish immigrants outnumbered Irish men and that created a, a lot of problems um, in terms of getting married and finding a, a social group? You know, what is what is your life like? I would love to I would love to talk to her. And she sounds very articulate and I'm sure she'd have a lot to say. And I would love to eavesdrop on the conversation that you had with her. Even though we can't hear from so many of the domestic uh, servants and help in these houses, it's it's a miracle and it's wonderful that we can at least hear from a few. Esther, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so, so, oh. you clarified so many things, certainly for me, about about the Gilded Age and, and from the perspective of servants. And there's clearly so much more that we could say. I know, I, I love it. And I would love it. to have you back. I, I wish, honestly, it would just be, if I could be a fly on the wall in a servant's life in Gilded Age, New York, I mean, that would just be fascinating and I could just really get a sense of what it was like. What was it like in those houses? You know, we're we're so used to the photos of the exteriors. I want to know what was inside, you know, it just it just the daily life, the flow of all of these people. You had said during the break, oh, I, I wish we could do a part two. Well, maybe we should do a part two. I, I would certainly love to have you back. Thank you so much for joining You're me welcome. today. You're welcome, Carl. It was really fun. Very could go on forever. <laughs> and to my listeners, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Gilded Gentleman. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash The Gilded Gentleman. Your support quite literally helps me produce the show from studio costs to research and editing. And if you're enjoying the shows, please do leave a review. You know, your calling card. And do visit my website and sign up for my free monthly updates so you can stay up up to date on all my gilded goings on. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs> <laughs>